Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do um, humble ourselves before you this morning, uh, confessing that uh, everything that we have comes from you, and that you have uh, guided our steps uh, every day of our lives, and you've provided everything we need, and abundantly through Christ, you've given us uh, the very riches of Christ, you've imputed to our account. And none of these things are things that we have earned or deserved. It's only by your grace. And so, God, we worship you this morning for your love to us. And we ask that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, help us to see wonderful things from your law uh, that would encourage our hearts and build up our faith so that we might um, persevere and live for you in in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've received. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So today the task is to go, Lord willing and time allowing, uh, to go from first, Second Kings 4 to the beginning of chapter 8. So we've got a little more than four chapters to cover today. Um, but by way of introduction, I want to read to you something from the book of Galatians and chapter 6. Uh, the scripture says, this is Galatians 6, 7 and following, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, so in that, this verse... Uh, this verse can help us transition to 2 Kings because it gives us a farming analogy. If you plant corn in the ground, you don't get oats. You get, you get more corn. If you put an apple seed in the ground, you get an apple tree. You don't get a grapevine. And what Paul is saying there is if you sow according to the Spirit, you reap everlasting life. If you sow according to the flesh, you reap corruption. So there is, in God's economy, there is a reward for our faith and our work. Um, in 2 Kings 4 uh, through 8, there is a, we see a series of miracles. It's really kind of like a gospel. It's really set up like the gospels. There's just event after event after event. And these events are all miracles that Elisha does. It's miracle after miracle after miracle. And so it's very similar to something like the book of Mark where it's just fast-paced action, short stories that teach us about these miracles. But all of these miracles are tied together in these chapters based on the idea of a reward for faith. Uh, every one of the miracles that we're about to read is Elisha doing something for someone as a reward for their service to God or their faith in, or their faith in God's word. Or the other miracles would be punishment for the opposite, someone who ridicules God's word uh, being punished for that. So that, that is the, that's the theme that this, these chapters are developing, that our labor for God is not without its reward. We should not lose heart in serving God because God will take care of all of our needs and he will reward us in the end. Uh, so that is the theme that we're going to be exploring today. Uh, so let's just jump into the text. And this is 2 Kings 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, there is a certain of the woman, of the wives of the sons of the prophets, cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. And so we have this, this woman is introduced to us. She doesn't have a name. We don't know anything about her except that her husband was one of the sons of the prophets. And these were people who were, like I mentioned last week, they had the gift of prophecy, but not on the level of someone like Elijah or Elisha. 
and what they did is they didn't just prophesy sometimes, but they served uh, the major prophets like Elisha and Elisha. They would serve them. They would meet their needs. They would take care of them, and they would also minister the, the word of God as well. And so this, this man who was one of Elisha's servants, he was supporting the work of the ministry. He's now dead, but the problem was he was a poor man. Even though he was serving God, he was poor throughout his life, and he died with debts. And in those days, if you couldn't pay your debts, they came and they took your kids, and they put their kids to work in the mines or wherever to pay the debt. And so this lady, no, no, not through any irresponsible of her, you, excuse me, not through any irresponsibility of her husband necessarily or any fault of her own, she's in this situation where her kids are about to go into slavery. And so look at Elisha's um, eagerness to help her in verse two. So Elisha said to her, "What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house?" And she responds, all I have in the house is nothing. This is her, the depth of her poverty except a jar of oil. And this is not one of those gallon jugs you get at Sam's or something. This is just a little, just a little jar of oil is all she's got. That's, that's all she has to her name that is of value. And so he, re, he says to her in verse 3, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and don't get just a few. And when you've brought them in, shut the door behind you and your sons and pour, pour from that oil that little jar, into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So he gives her instructions of what to do. He intends to do a miracle for her to help her pay her debts. So, but it requires her faith. She has to do something. She has to take a step of faith in order for this miracle to happen. And so she has to go gather vessels from empty jars from all of her neighbors all around and get as many as she possibly can. He explicitly tells her to get as many as she can. And then she will be able to pour the oil. And so there's a hint in that that the miracle is going to happen in proportion to her faith. If she doesn't believe him and gets just a few, when this miracle happens, she'll have just a little bit of oil. So there is, he's offering to do this miracle for her, but he requires her to take a step of faith. And, he, and he's basically telling her, in, a, in, a, in accordance of your faith, will it be done to you? And there are, don't you remember there are miracles in the New Testament that Jesus did where he said, let it be to you according to your faith? Now, not every miracle Jesus did was like that, but there were times in the Gospels where he said, in accordance with your faith, it will be to you. Well, that's similar to what Elisha is saying to this woman. And so she goes, and she does what he says. And she gets the jars. It doesn't tell you how many in verse 5. But then she shuts the door behind her, and they start pouring the oil, and they have an assembly line going. She pours a jar. One son sets it aside. Another son gets her another jar. And she says, bring me another one. And he says, at the end of verse 6, there's not another vessel. So the oil ceased. So this is, this is a miracle of, of multiplication, kind of like Jesus multiplied the breads, the bread and the fishes and supplied the need that way. In a similar way, God, God, through the word of Elisha, multiplies the oil. And it stops when they get to the last vessel. So again, it's, the, it's the, that standard. As many vessels as she got, that's how much oil there was. Um, excuse me, I lost my place. Uh, and then she came and told the, the man of God, she, in verse 7, she comes and, and tells that to him. And he says, go and sell the oil and pay your debt, and you are sons, and your sons, look at the text. It says you live on the rest. Isn't, that's an amazing detail. Not only did she get, if, if the miracle was done in accordance with her faith, look at the measure of her faith. She didn't just get enough jars to pay off the debt. She gets enough, not just to pay off the debt, but to live on after that. God gave her enough oil. It's like she's got an olive orchard in her back room or something now. She's got so much oil that she not just doesn't just pay off her debts and save her kids from slavery, 
but now she has enough to live on as a widow. Uh, and as a widow, that's, that's a desperate thing. Back then, if you were a widow, you had no way to support yourself. And so God here is, he's not just meeting the immediate need, he's meeting her future needs as well through this miracle. And the, and the point of the text is that this is in response to a life of faith that's been lived up to this point. These people were living in poverty, but they were also serving God, and, and they were servants of Elisha. And there is a reward for that work. And that reward is not just to meet their immediate needs, but it continues on. Um, so that's the first little episode, and now we move to another episode, and this one's a little bit longer. Elisha, of course, his ministry required him to travel all around, and he comes to a town called Shunem, which is near the Sea of Galilee. And there was, in verse 8, a noble woman there, a notable woman there, a rich woman, and she grabs onto him and persuades him to eat some food. That is, don't pass by here until you stop at my house and let me serve you a meal. Let me show you hospitality. And so it was, as often as he passed by, she would, he would turn in there to eat some food. And so she said to her husband, look now, I see that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And so here's this woman, out of the kindness of her heart, um, she wants to support the ministry of the word of God. She sees that he's a holy man. She sees that he's traveling around giving God's word. And she's got, they have enough to live on. I mean, they're, they're a well-off family. So they think, well, we've got something to share. So let's share it with him. We, we can't serve in the word of God like he can, but we can, we've got money. And so they build him a little place. They build him a little room to sleep in and they give him food. Every time he passes through town, he can stay there on their dime. And so the, this woman is using what she has to serve God. And so Elisha, again, is interested in rewarding her somehow. And so one day, in verse 11, when he comes there, he turned to his um, friend, his servant Gehazi, and says, call the Shunammite woman. And when she comes in, he says, look, you have been concerned for us with all of this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on... On your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Uh, do you want me to get the king to reward you for this? Do you want me to uh, in elevate your husband's status? Maybe give him a cushy government job or something? And look at her response in verse 13. I dwell among my own people. That is to say, I'm content with what God has given me. She's not ambitious for greater status or greater wealth. What she has is what God has given her, and she's content with that. So he said, then what then is to be done for her? He's not willing to take that answer uh, as sufficient. He still is going, he's determined to reward her for her service. And so he, um, his friend, Gehazi, answers, actually she has no son and her husband is old. So like Sarah um, or Hannah or one of these other great women of faith in the Old Testament, um, she's barren and her husband's old. And so he says, call her in. And he gives her this promise from the word of God in verse 15. About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And her response is, no, my Lord, uh, don't lie to your maidservant. That is, she's not sure if she wants to accept that or even believe it. Uh, but according to the word of God in verse 17, she conceived and bore a son at the appointed time. That is, at the exact time that God's word said she would. It was filled in exactly that way. And so the child grew. It happened one day. Now, in verse 18, verse 18 means that years have passed. You know, he's now probably 12 or 13 years old or something like that because he goes out into the field to his father, to the reapers. You know, a three-year-old boy is not going to go start reaping grain out in the field. He's, he's somewhat old enough and strong enough that he can begin working now. So some years have passed. 
And he said to his father, my head, my head. Um, and the servant, and he tells the servant, carry him to his mother. And in verse 20, when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon, and then he died. And so this, this son that she didn't ask for, uh, that it was her reward for her faith, is now taken from her. And we don't even know what happened. He just said, my head hurts, and he falls down dead. So there's some kind of, I don't know what kind of strange disease that is, or maybe it wasn't even a disease. Um, so this, this gift that she had not sought, that was her reward of faith, is now taken from her. And so this is where there, a crisis of faith can come in. Um, is she going to continue to trust God or not? Is she going to continue to serve God or not? Is she going to blame God for her suffering, or is she going to continue to serve God? And this woman becomes a powerful example of faith in her response. Look at what she does. Um, she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door upon him and went out. So she went and hid the body, basically. This is, she went to that little room that they had built for Elisha, and she put him in there and closed the door. No one goes in that room except Elisha because that's his little room. So she puts him in there and shuts the door. That is to hide the body. Um, and then she called her husband and says, please send me, this is verse 22, uh, and one of the young men and one of the donkeys so that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, well, why are you going to him today? Why do you need to leave now? What is so urgent? It's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. This is not a normal time of worship. Why, were, why are you going to see him now? And look at her response. It's well, the Hebrew word shalom. No, it's, it's okay. Everything's okay is what she says. Is that everything? Everything is not okay, though. That's, that's the problem. Everything is not okay. But she, she is, just as she's content with what she has, she is at peace in this situation. And she doesn't even tell her husband that the boy has died. Why not? What do you all think? Why is she not telling her husband everything's really not okay? Why, she didn't, why doesn't she tell him? Yeah, she's got a plan, but, he, but he's dead. The child is actually dead. What's she going to do to save him? She thinks Elijah can do something to reverse death. That's why she doesn't tell her husband. Look at her faith. I mean, she's not just, she's, it's not that her son is sick and she wants him to come heal. Her son is dead and she wants Elijah to raise him from the dead. And she thinks Elijah, or Elisha, can do that. This is an amazing statement of faith. When she says, it's well. And so she doesn't even tell him, but she goes anyway. She takes the donkey. Her husband gives her permission. She takes the donkey and the servant. And she says to the man, the servant, drive and go forward and don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. That is, um, don't regard my delicate frame. Just drive that, drive that donkey. Um, and so she departed and went to him in haste, obviously. And when she comes, she, uh, Elisha sees her coming from afar off. And he says, he tells Gehazi to go find out what's wrong. And she doesn't tell him. She says to him again, it's well, in verse 26, shalom. Um, and when she comes to the man of God, she falls at his feet. And she is apparently weeping now, grieving now. And Gehazi comes near uh, to push, literally push her away. But the man of God says, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden from me uh, and hasn't told me. And here, here's her response. Did I, did I ask a son from the Lord? Did I not say, don't deceive me? Um, so, no, so she starts. She pours out her heart to him. She wouldn't tell her husband. She w- wouldn't tell Gehazi, but she will, she will tell him because he's the one who can do something about it. She pours her heart out to him. 
And so Elisha sets this plan in place. He says, Gehazi, go ahead of me and take her with you and take my staff and you put my staff on the boy as if he's giving Gehazi the idea that Gehazi maybe can do the miracle instead and, and she can just go with him and they'll do it together. He sends them out. Um, but she responds to that. That's unacceptable to her in verse 30. The mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not leave you. She's, she's going to expect him to come. So he arose and followed her, and Gehazi went on ahead. He did what he was told, and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. So he came back and said, the child has not awakened. So Elisha comes into the house. This is verse 32 now. And there was the child laying dead on the bed. And so he went, he went in, therefore, and shut the door behind him, and he prayed to the Lord. Now, that's not an insignificant detail either. Now, Elisha did not do miracles by his own word or his own power. Now, when it tells us he's praying, he is depending on God to do this. Um, and you can see that yeah, that same idea is repeated up there in verse 27 when he says, the Lord hidden it, hid it from me and didn't reveal me. Elisha cannot do anything without God telling him to do it. He can't perform any miracle without praying first. Now, the, sometimes we get the idea that these, these great men of God in the Old Testament sort of did it on their own or in their own power or something like that. But this text is reminding us that Elisha depends on God fully for what he is doing. Uh, he's not doing this on his own. So he goes in and prays to God, and he did it repeatedly. He went up, and he some, this is kind of a weird, I'm not really sure why he does this, but he lays on top of the child face-to-face, hands-to-hands, and, um, and in response to doing that, the child becomes warm, and he does that more than once. He did it over and over again. Um, and then he stretched him out again, and the child now sneezes seven times, and then he opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. And he, so he called her, and he gives the child back to him, and he says, pick up your son in verse 37. She fell at his feet, bowed down to the ground, picked up her son, and went out. Um, and so this, in this story, there is this miracle. Of, there's a, in each of these stories, we're going to see there's, kind of, there's a reversal that takes place. In the first story, it was... Poverty turned into wealth. In this story, it's death turned into life. And this is, it, this story is teaching us that this is a reward of her faith. She was, she was faithful to serve the man of God. God rewarded her with a son. She was faithful to believe even when God took that son away and God gave it, gave it back to her uh, from the dead, gave that son back to her from the dead. So there is, again, that reward of faith that comes. And... And in the text, there is this that the man of God, under God's power, can take death and turn it backwards. Um, and we know from our story last week that there's an intentional typology being developed here. You know, we, we talked about last week how the transition from Elijah to Elisha was intended to foreshadow another transition of ministry from John the Baptist to Jesus Christ. Um, and you see, Elijah raised someone from the dead. He raised one person that we know of. And Elisha raised one person from the dead that we know of. Uh, but Jesus Christ raised numerous people from the dead. Um, there was the widow of Nain's son. There was Jairus' daughter. There was Lazarus. And then you remember on Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead in the Gospel of Matthew, there was a, a multitude of righteous people that came up out of the grave and started walking around telling people. Um, so th- these, these miracles that Elisha are doing, it's not, just, it's not just to show us that there's a reward for faith but it's to show us where we need to put that faith to get the reward. They are 
these miracles are intentionally foreshadow the ministry of Jesus. Or to put it another way, Jesus intentionally chose some of his miracles to remind us of these stories. Um, and we'll, we'll see that. That comes up again when he, um, Elisha feeds a multitude. But the, these texts not only tell us that there's a reward for our faith, they tell us where to put our faith. We're looking for the man of God who can turn death into life. And we find him in Jesus Christ. Um, so it might be profitable for us to meditate on these kind of stories as we get ready for Easter. And Jesus Christ is the one who can do that. Um, so the next story uh, is, a, is a small one, but there is another reversal and another reward for faith. Elisha now returns to Gilgal. He's still going all around ministering. But there was a famine in the land. And now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said to his servant, put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And so they went out and they gathered herbs and a wild vine. And one and somebody gathered a lap full of wild gourds and sliced them up and put them in this pot of stew. But they didn't know what they were. So they're just going around getting random plants from the wilderness and just putting them in a pot. But uh, the commentaries will say that there, there is a gourd in Israel that if you eat it, it has laxative properties. Um, it cleans you out. And if you eat enough of it, it's fatal. And that is apparently the gourd that he got. He gathered up a lot of this stuff. And it's this poisonous thing that is laxative, and if you eat too much of it, it will kill you. And that's what they put in the pot to eat, because he didn't know what they were. So they served it to the men, and that happened as they were eating the stew. They cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot, and they couldn't eat it. So Elijah's, Elisha's response to that is, bring me some flour, as if flour is going to take that out. Uh, obviously not. Um, so he puts, it into the, he puts it into the pot and says, serve it to the people so that they can eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. So here you have another, another little episode. It's a short one, but these are people who are serving Elisha. These are his, his, the, the sons of the prophets. These are the men he's teaching. These are the men who are serving him in return and who are also ministering the word of God. And they gather up, the, they gather up this pot and they cook it to eat it, and it's poisonous. And so they cry out to God through the prophet, and he does a miracle to reverse that. Again, it's a, a reversing death into life. This was poisonous stew that if you eat it, it will kill you. And now the miracle is done that reverses that. Of course, it's not flour that takes poison out of a stew. It's the word of God that does that. Uh, and so it is a miracle. So, they, so again, that's, that, there's that idea of rewarding them for their faith and reversing death into life. Uh, so, so that's that same theme. And that theme continues in the next little short story. Um, there was a man from Baal Shalisha, verse 42, and he brought the man of God bread from the first fruits and 20 loaves of barley bread, newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, um, so here's this guy, and he comes and he brings Elisha an offering from his field. Uh, what was happening at this time in the northern kingdom is there, were no, there was no true temple. They didn't, always, they didn't go down to Jerusalem to worship all, always. Um, they couldn't necessarily do that all the time. So where are you going to go? If you want to bring your offering to God, where are you going to go? Uh, the northern kingdom was... Um, lost in idolatry. Are you going to go to the temple of Baal to bring your first fruits? Well, you can't do that, not if you love God, not if you want to serve him. So where are you going to go to bring your offering? You go to Elisha. Um, and the, the same thing is true in a, lot of, um, in a lot of places today. There is a famine of the word of God, especially in a lot of small towns, where faithful Christians, they don't have a ministry they can go to to say this is a faithful ministry. So what do they do with their offering? Oftentimes, they send it off to somebody like John MacArthur, or they send it up to 
because they don't, if they don't have somewhere around them where they can give an offering, they have to find somewhere, some other person they think is maybe faithful to give their offering. And that, that's what's happening here is there's a famine of the word of God. Where am I going to give my offering? I can't bring it to the temple, so I bring it to Elisha. So in response to that, look at how God rewards him for this offering. Uh, this offering is given in faith. And so Elisha says, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? what? Shall I set this before a hundred men? And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate it and they had some left over according to the word of God. And that sounds like something I've read before, doesn't it? That's the exact same miracle that Jesus did. Except when Jesus did it, he did it more than once, and he did it to a whole lot more people, 5,000 men and 4,000 men on different occasions. So again, here, here's this, this typology that is explicitly in the text, that we're supposed to be able to see it. The ministry of Elisha foreshadows the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ intentionally chose some of his miracles to show that to the people. Just like there was a, a, um, a prophet that came after Elijah and and, say, and brought salvation to the people. Jesus, I, Jesus did these miracles to say he's following John the Baptist, and he's the one bringing salvation to these people. And so he multiplies the bread, in this case the bread and the, bar, and the barley loaves, in Jesus' case the fish and the bread. Um, it is in part, it's, it's in part to show us, as I said before, where we need to put our faith. We don't put our faith in Elisha. We put our faith in the one that Elisha represents, the one who Elisha is looking forward to. And that's how we have to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament stories are typological by their very nature. These are real events that foreshadow real people in the future. And that's how we, we have to understand the Old Testament that way, because that's, 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 that's just the hermeneutic that the New Testament uses to read it. So anyway, moving on to chapter 5. So now there's, here's another episode where there is, there is a reward for faith given. Uh, and there's another reversal that happens in this text. There's a, both a reward for faith and a punishment for a lack of faith. Um, and so now Naaman, in verse 5, we're introduced to Naaman, who's the commander of the army of Syria. And he's a great and honorable man because of the victories that the Lord gave to Syria. But he was also a leper. And as the Syrians go around, they, they, they're sending skirmishers and, and raiding parties into Israel. And they captured a little girl from her family, and took her to Syria, and she now became um, Naaman's wife's household servant, her helper. So his, his wife was busy at home, and he needed some help, so he went and stole a, stole a child to help her. Um, and so, but look at the faith of this little girl. As she said to her mistress in verse 3, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. But she's not bold enough, she's enough bold enough in her faith that she's going to speak for Elisha. You know, if he'll if if he'll just go there and see Elisha, he can be healed of his leprosy. So she not only believes that the word of God is powerful in Elisha, she doesn't resent her captor because she trusts God. How many little girls who are stolen from their home and their family and made to be slaves would be concerned for the health of the man who kidnapped them? Um it takes a woman who's been trans it takes a little girl who's transformed by God's grace to, to even have that kind of heart. Uh, so there's evidence of faith in her life, uh, and you can see that there. And so she is concerned for his health. So Naaman tells the king about this, and the king says, "I will send a letter 
with you to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him, this is verse 5, now ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel is greatly distressed at this. And he says, what am I, God? That I can reverse death? That I can reverse leprosy? That I can kill and make alive? Can I do these kind of reversals? Uh, now look, the, the king of, he thinks the king of Syria is looking for an opportunity to invade. He's, the king is, he's considering how he seeks a quarrel with me, he says in verse 7. But Elisha is aware of what goes on in private in the king's chambers. And so he says in verse 8, uh, when, the, when the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So not only does Elisha know why he's torn his clothes, he knows the whole situation and what he can do about it. So Naaman brings his char chariots and his horses and all his wealth, and he brings his whole parade down to Elisha's house, and Elisha won't even come out the door to meet him. He sends his little boy to go out there, there's this great and mighty man who is, who's wealthy and powerful. He's a diplomat on a diplomatic mission, and just send the little boy out there to, to tell him what to do. So Naaman, he says, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you and be clean. And Naaman becomes furious in verse 11, and he went away. Indeed, I said to myself, and notice why he's angry in verse 11. Indeed, I said to myself, surely he will come out to me. And he'll stand, and he'll call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and heal my leprosy. In other words, his expectations weren't met. He was expecting to be received as a dignitary and honored by the prophet. He didn't get, the, he didn't get that, and he was expecting there to be some kind of mumbo-jumbo ceremony going on. He'll wave his hand over the place, and, and he'll, he'll heal me somehow. He'll do some kind of magic or something. So his expectations weren't met, and he becomes wrathful. And that is, um, that is one of the... Uh, causes of anger. One of the reasons we get angry with one another is because our expectations for other people aren't being met. They're not doing, they're not doing it the way I want them to. Um, that is, so the, the word of God is revealing to us how sin works in our heart. It's the same with him. So Naaman becomes furious, but his, his servants who are with him encourage him to trust the man of God. They encourage him to trust the word of God. And so he says in verse 13, the servants came near to him and spoke to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, you would have done it. How much more than when he says, wash and be clean? So a soft answer turns away Naaman's wrath, and he changes his mind, and he goes down to the river, and he washes seven times, and he comes up. His skin, as it says in verse 14, was now like the flesh of a little child. And so there's, that, there's a reversal there that takes place. His flesh was corrupted and falling apart, and he washes in the river, and now he's like a little baby again. All that, that soft, smooth skin that babies have. So there's that complete reversal. Not only is there a complete reversal in his outward appearance, there is now a change in his heart as well. So he returns to the man of God with all his aids, and he stood before him and said, now look, now look at the text. He stands before Elisha. If, before, Elisha was behind the door hiding, not, not willing to speak with him. But now when he comes back, he stands before Elisha. Elisha is willing to meet with him now. Indeed, he says, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, please take this gift from your servant. So now, so there has been not only a reversal of his physical appearance, but as I say, a reversal of his heart. But Elisha is unwilling to accept a gift from his hand. We've been seeing all, all, along, in the, all along through these chapters, someone who, 
who sees Elisha's work wants to support him. So isn't that what's been happening? But he refuses to do so. And I think the reason is in verse 16 when he says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. He wants to try to, he knows that Naaman comes from a pagan background, and he wants to show him something about God. That God is not the kind of God that can be manipulated or paid off like the pagan gods. He is a God of grace. And so this, this gift comes, this transformation of your heart and of your body has come to you by God's grace. It's not something you pay for. It's something God is just giving to you. And so he's trying to show him something about God's grace. That's why he refuses the gift. And so Naaman leaves without giving him anything. Except he takes a little bit of dirt with him. In verse 17. But Gehazi um, is a little bit more than disappointed by that. Um, he, sees, he sees the man leave and he says, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving anything from him anything from his hand. And then he says in verse 20, 20, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will take something from him. So Gehazi is upset at God's grace. He says, I want to get something from this guy. He is coveting this man's wealth. He came, Naaman came with this huge display of wealth and Gehazi wants some. And so he goes after him and he lies. Gehazi asked him, or Naaman asked him if everything's well. He says, everything's well, but Two young men from the sons of the prophets have come. Um, please give them a talent of silver. That's like 70 pounds of silver. It's a, huge, it's a huge amount of silver. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman, look at the generosity of his heart. Take two talents. Give them each a talent of silver, he says. So Naaman, Naaman is generous in his response to the grace of God. God has changed his heart, and he wants to give. You know, if God has a hold of your heart, he also has a hold of your wallet. You do know that. And if you are stingy in giving to the work of God, um, you might need to check the temperature of your heart and see if it's not cold towards God. Um, Naaman is generous because God has changed him. And, we, and that is true of us today too. It's true of people in the church. When you see someone who is stingy towards God, it may be that their heart has not been changed. Um, and so he is generous while Gehazi is greedy. And so he took the two talents and two changes of clothes, and he hands them off to his servants, and they go on, they take it to his house, and they hide it there, and he comes back in to see Elisha again. And Elisha says, where did you go, Gehazi? Where have you been? Oh, nowhere, nowhere special. He lies again. He, he's lying again about where he's been. But Elisha, as a prophet of God, knows his heart and knows what he's been up to. So he said to him, did not my heart go with you? That is, don't you think God's going to reveal to me what you're up to? My heart was there with you. That is, God allowed me to know what you're, what you're doing. When you turned the man back from the chariot to meet you, is it time to receive money and clothes, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his present leprous white as snow. So there's another reversal. Gehazi has shown that his heart is leprous. And so God made his body leprous as well. So there's, there's a double reversal in this passage that's, that's turning around faith. Naaman trusted and obeyed the word of the prophet, and his heart was cleaned and changed, and his leprosy was taken away. Gehazi refuses the word of the prophet. He explicitly disobeys what the prophet told him to do. And so his heart is changed. His, his, the leprosy is given to him. He's, taken, he's turned from being clean to unclean. 
And that, again, it, it's in this text, it's a response of faith. It's the reward of faith or the lack thereof. So if the word of God, if the word of God is always true, and we trust in it that God will reward us on the basis of our faith. That's what, this, that's what these stories are saying. Um, and so now we're going into chapter 6, and there is another little story, another short episode, um, which is another strange miracle. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, this chapter 6, verse 1, See now, please, the place, the place where we're dwelling is too small for us. Let us go to Jordan, and every man take a beam from there, and let's build a place where we can dwell. And he said, Go. And they say, come with us. So he went down with them to the Jordan River, and they start cutting down trees. But in verse 5, as one was cutting down a tree, an iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, for it was borrowed. Uh, and the Son of Man said, where did it fall? And they showed him where it falls. So he throws a stick in the river, and the axe head floats to the surface. And he says, pick it up for yourself. So he picked it up and took it. That's a pretty strange little story. Um, and there's no miracle like that anywhere else in the Bible, as far as I know. It's, and some of the commentaries are confused about it because they think it's a trivial thing. Um, but it's not, it's not really, this is not really, it's a small story, and it's a small miracle, but it's not a trivial thing uh, for this man. This man was a son, one of the sons of the prophets. He's one of Elisha's servants, so he's ministering the word of God and serving the word of God. And he's trying to serve Elisha more by building them all a place to stand. But he's so poor he can't even afford an axe. This man is, even though he's living his life in the service of God, he's so poor he can't even buy an axe. Of course, back in those days, you couldn't just go down to Walmart or Lowe's or somewhere and buy an axe. They had they think these things were mined by hand and forged by hand, and so they were expensive implements. This is we're only a couple hundred years into the Iron Age. Iron is still a very expensive thing, and it's relatively new in terms of history. It's a relatively new technology, so. Anyway, this is, this is an expensive item for a poor man. And he's so poor, he has to borrow it from someone else to serve God with it. Um, and you know, according to the Old Testament law in Exodus 22, what happens if you lose something that you've borrowed? You have to pay it back. He's so poor, he can't, he's so poor, he can't afford an axe, and now the word of God commands him to buy one and give it to the guy who borrowed it from. This is, this is a... Um, if you've ever been poor, this is, not, this is not a situation you would take lightly. You know, if you've ever struggled financially, if you're in this situation where you're serving God and now you're in debt because you're serving God and it's a debt you don't have enough money to pay, um, it may be a small miracle, but it's not a small thing to this man. And so he cries, his heart cries out, alas, master, it was borrowed. And as he seeks God and says, what am I going to do? And the answer is uh, just very simple. Elisha throws a stick in. Of course, sticks don't make iron float, obviously. But the iron floats up to the top. But there's that reversal. It's a reversal of, of weight, almost, in density. Um, the natural order is turned upside down here to reward a man who trusts God. You know, um, you know obviously, we know iron doesn't float. But here, in this, in this case, iron the water was made heavy and the iron was made light or something. Or there was an angel picked it up or I don't know what happened. But it's a reversal of the natural order. And this reversal is done to reward a man who trusted God, even in his poverty. And this the story, it shows us that we, if we trust God with our lives, God will take care of every need that we have, even if it seems to us insignificant that he, he dropped it in the water. Okay, so jump in the water and get it. You know, why, well, I don't know why he didn't do that. But the, the point of the story is to show that God cares for every single need that we have. 
There is no, there is no situation and circumstance that we come to that God is unconcerned about. And if we trust in him and if we serve him, he will meet every need that we have. Um, that's the lesson we should take from that story. But moving on, there's another episode um, that is another reversal um, that depends on, that hinges on faith. So now the king of Syria, again, he's, he's still, note, note the king of Syria, what God is doing for the king of Syria. God sent Naaman um, to Israel to hear the word of God and be changed, and Naaman went back and was still serving the king of Syria. So now the king of Syria knows that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, because Naaman has come back to him. So what does the king of Syria do in verse 8 of chapter 6? He makes war against Israel, and he consults with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. So, so the king of Syria is without excuse. He knows that there is a God in Israel, and that there is no God anywhere else. So what does he do? He attacks. And he makes his plans. He says, I'm going to set my camp in this place. But God is one step ahead and reveals the plan to Elisha. In verse 9, the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Um, he, he, you know, the, the element of surprise is completely taken away from the Syrians' battle plan because there's a prophet um, who gets the word from God. So the king, and this happens, and you see in verse 10, it happens not just once or twice. This is a repeated thing. Every time the king of Syria tries to invade Israel, his plans are thwarted, because the Israelites somehow, they know about it ahead of time. And so the heart of the king, in verse 11, was greatly troubled. That word is the word for a, a violent storm. It's a, he was storming in his heart, and he was wrathful. And he said to his servants in verse 11, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks there must be a spy. And the servants say, no. See, the servants already know where God is, too. This is not, this is not a secret. No, my lord, the king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That is, you think you're, you think you're making your plans by yourself, writing them down in your room all alone, and Elisha knows about it because God tells him. That's what a prophet does. He hears God's words and tells them. And so what does he do? Does he say, does he humble himself and say, well, there's a prophet there. We should seek God through him. No, he says, go capture him. He tells his men to go find out where he is. They tell him he's in Dothan. And so in verse 14, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army down there by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, what shall we do? So here's the question of faith for this servant. This servant's faith in God has now been challenged. They wake up one morning and they go out he looks out the city, and there is an army encircling them. And so that's the question. What are we going to do? Are we gonna, how are we going to do? And so Elisha says to him, don't fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I open the eyes, open his eyes that he may see. And so God opened his eyes in response to the prayer of Elisha. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. So what's a horse and chariot of fire? A what? An angel. And it's not just one angel, it's a whole army of angels are around Elisha. So there's these concentric rings, if you will. There's the Syrian army around them, but surrounding in, inside that, surrounding Elisha, is an army of angels that apparently Elisha was given the grace to see, and he prayed that his servant would be also be given the grace to see that. 
So in this text, there's, there is a, and here's where the reversal comes in. Elisha prays again. And he says in verse 18, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So there's that reversal. It's the reversal between blindness and sight that takes place in this one. Elisha's servant is spiritually blind. He can't see the spiritual world, and so God gives him sight And in response to the prayer of Elisha. And also in response to Elisha's prayer, God takes the Syrian army and he blinds them all. Um, and look at Elisha's boldness. He goes out to meet the army. And look what he does in verse 19. Don't go this way or that way. This is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. So he goes out there and he leads the blind army away. They were trying to kill him, but he goes out to them and he leads them off. And where he takes them is down to Samaria. And he brings them right into the king's courtyard. He brings them right up in front of the king. And then he asks, in verse 20, Open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. And so the, after they open their eyes, and they're looking around, and they realize that they're in, the, they're in the lion's den, the king of Israel says to Elisha, Should I kill them? What do you think? Should I kill them? And he answered, Don't kill them. Would you kill those you've taken captive with a sword or bow? No, you don't typically kill your captives. These men have been captured in the same way. Instead, give them food and water that they may drink and go to their master. So he prepared a feast for them and then sent them back. And they, it says, so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. I should think not. Um, so God does this reversal. It's based, it is in a response to the faith of Elisha. This is, this is all in response to Elisha's prayers. God says, blind them, he blinds them. Give them sight, give them sight. And he does. Um, and what God is doing in this text is he's protecting his servant. He's protecting Elisha, using these miracles to protect Elisha based on Elisha's faith. And there is that reversal, as we've seen before, consistently. But this time, it's a reversal of sight and blindness. Um, but the king said, it says... Um, that there were no more raiding parties that came in. But that doesn't mean the king of Syria has changed his mind. Because look at the very next verse, chapter 6, verse 24. It happened after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So his response, so God has shown him a second time that there is a prophet in Israel and there's no God anywhere else. He did it through Naaman, but he didn't learn the lesson. He's continued to send raiding parties in. And so God has, in his grace, he hasn't destroyed those raiding parties, but sent them back to testify that there's a prophet there and we shouldn't mess with them. So what does he do? Instead of sending raiding parties, now he sends the whole army. Maybe the raiding parties, I just, I just didn't do it big enough. So now we're going to send everybody in and we're going to destroy Samaria for what they've done. And so they go up and they besiege Samaria. And so now here's, this is the longest story in our section but there is that, that theme of faith and a reversal of fortunes happens again in this story. So the, the Assyrian army comes up and they besiege Samaria. And they do it for long enough that in verse 25 there was a great famine in Samaria. No one, of course, during a siege, no one can go in and no one can come out. So there's no food coming into the city. There's no trade going on with the farmland around it. So they, they start slowly running out of food. And they, the siege lasted so long, in verse 25, it was until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth a cab of, 
dove droppings, you know, a couple ounces of dove droppings were five shekels of silver. I guess they were, maybe that was fuel. I don't think they were eating that. They were probably burning it for fuel. But these prices are unheard of prices. You know, this is, um, I think a shekel was, if I remember, it was like, it was either a week or a month's pay. I can't remember which one. But if you're buying a donkey's head, if you're going to cook head cheese from a donkey and you're going to pay 80 shekels of silver for that, it, things are pretty desperate. Uh, things are very desperate in Israel. And not only that, but they get worse. So the king of Israel is passing by on the wall, and a woman cries out to him, Save me, Lord the king. And he says, look at, his, look at the response of faith from the uh, king. And he said, If the Lord doesn't help you, where can I find help for you? In other words, God hasn't helped you. God has abandoned us. That's what the king says. And notice where he's saying that from. He's standing on the wall. He's standing on the wall of the city in front of everybody, and he's saying, eh, God's abandoned us. Such is, such is the faith of the king of Israel. But anyway, um, the Lord hasn't helped you. And so what's troub- he asks him, what's troubling you after he r- ridicules God publicly? And she answers to him and says, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we boiled my son and ate him. And then I said to her the next day, give me your son, but she has hidden her son from me. So things are extremely desperate. They're, they're turning, in, this is the most desperate situation imaginable in terms of starvation uh, of what's happening in, in Israel. And when the king heard this, he tore his clothes and he, and he swears an oath in verse 31, God do so to, to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So in other words, he blames God for what's happened. The city is in the most desperate situation he can remember in his lifetime, and it's God's fault. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill him. I'm going to go kill Elisha. This is, this is the faith, or if you want to call it that, the, the unbelief of the king of Israel. And we see that he's doing it publicly. But Elisha... Look at how God protects him. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came, that man who was sent was the guy who was going to kill him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast, and hold him fast at the door. Is it not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking to them, there was a messenger coming down to him, and, he, and the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So this man, uh, so the king swears this oath, and he sends a man to do his, to, he commands the man, go get Elisha's head and bring it to me. And so that man goes in haste to do it. But God has already revealed to Elisha what's coming. And so he has the men who are with him bar the door to keep him from coming in. Well, the guy gets there. He can't get into the house to take off Elisha's head. So he gives him a message from the king. And that message is, this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So again, the king of Israel is blaming God for his distress. But notice what he says. There's a limit to his faith. He has a self-imposed limit on his faith. He says, I'm going to trust God this far and no further. I'm going to wait for God this long and no more. Apparently, you know, what the commentaries will say is that apparently Elisha had given to him some words saying, just wait. God will deal with this siege. God will take away this problem. But he's saying here, I'm not going to wait for God any longer. 
I've, ha- I've tried it your way. I've tried to have faith, and I'm going to stop. It stops here. Um, now, we have never been in a desperate situation like the king of Israel has, but we're tempted in the same way. We come to it, we, we oftentimes, at least it is in my heart, we come to this trial, and I, I think in my heart, man, I just want to be done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't take it anymore. What, what I'm saying is, I want to trust, what I'm saying in my heart is, I want to trust God so far. I want to trust God when it's good. I want to trust God, but I'm going to put a limit on that and say, God, I, I can't trust you anymore. We are tempted in the same way, even though we haven't been through the same situation, we're all tempted in that same way. And look at what the word of God comes to him and says. Elisha said to him, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, this is chapter 7, verse 1. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Uh, now those prices are about only about seven times higher than usual. It's still not normal prices, but it's a whole lot better than it was. But it's at least flour instead of you know, dove dung. So in other words, in other words, you, you, you say to God, I'm going to wait this far no further, and God's response is one more day. One more day, and the answer will come. That was God's answer to the king of Israel at this time is one more day is all you need. All you need is faith enough for one more day, and, you'll find the re- you'll, and you will find the reward. Um, what God is looking for in us is a, perse- is a faith that perseveres. We read in Galatians to start, that we should not become weary in doing good because we know that there is a reward for our labor. Um, let us take the, the example of the king of Israel as a, as a warning to us, not to, put a limit on, not to put limits on time for God to take care of our needs. You know, we, we tend to say, God, do it, do it, or I, I can't trust you anymore. Do it now. We don't put limits on, of time on God, but trust him as long as it takes for him to reward you for your faith. If we know the word of God is always true, then we know God will reward our faith. But God's going to do it in his time and not, not necessarily ours. So keep going. Um, so an officer, and look at the, the man whom was in, who uh, the king had told to kill Elisha. He hears this word and he responds in verse 2 of chapter 7. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make the windows of heaven, if he would open the windows of heaven, could this thing be? In other words, is God, what is he going to do, make barley rain out of the sky? Even if God did that, that's not going to happen. He's saying there's no possible way that even Yahweh could do this miracle. It's impossible even for him. So this, this man doesn't believe. And Elisha's response to him is, in fact, you're going to see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. In other words, because of your lack of faith, this reward will come to everyone else but you. And so that's exactly what happens. In the nighttime, at twilight, there's four lepers outside the gate. Even leper, le- lepers were so considered unclean that even in time of war, they couldn't come inside the city. Um, so they, they're outside the gate, and they're, and they're saying to each other, why are we just going to sit here till we die? We're starving. If we go inside the city, we'll just starve to death. If we sit here, we'll just starve to death. Why don't we go see the Syrians? Maybe they'll not kill us. Maybe we'll be able to live. So they, since they've got nothing to lose, they actually are bold enough to go into the Syrian camp. And when they get there, they find nobody. All the tents are still pitched. The horses are still tied to their um, hobbles. And the, the donkeys are all still there. 
there's food in all the tents, and there's clothes, and there's money laying around, but there's no people. And so they start looking around, and they say, they, after they eat, after they eat a meal, they start gathering up gold and silver and clothes, and they go hide it somewhere. And they come back, and they come back a second or third time and do that. And then they realize in verse 9 that they're being selfish, and they say, in verse 9, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait till morning, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go to the king's household. So they realize so this, is, uh, this is happening at night. So Elisha said, this time tomorrow, there's going to be food in Samaria. So that very night, these lepers go out, and they spend their time in the nighttime in the dark, gathering up this money and food. And they say to each other, if, if sun rises and the people in Israel see that there's no one here and they know we took the stuff, they're going to punish us. So we better go tell them tonight before the sun rises. Notice how God is working out this timing. He's using the, uh, the instinct of self-preservation in these lepers to make his timing come to pass. And so they go out and they report to the king's household. And the king says, even though the king has already heard the word of God from Elisha, when the report comes that the camp's empty, he still does not believe it. Look at what he says. He says in verse 12, They know that we're hungry, therefore they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we'll catch them alive and go into the city. In other words, he thinks the Syrians are trying to trick them. They haven't really left. God's not really providing us all of their stuff. They're just trying to trick us. So he doesn't believe it, but his servants say, go check anyway. So they send a couple chariots out there to go look in the camp, and they find the camp empty. And they also go to check to see if the army is lying in wait. And, it's, and they go down the trail. It says in verse 15 that they went after them to the Jordan. Indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king that, and, and the result of that was that the Israelites went out and plundered them. And then in 16, the result was exactly what the word of God said. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two sayas of barley were sold for a shekel, according to the word of God. Um, so so it was, that reversal happened exactly like the word of God said. But look what happens to the man who doubted. The man that told Elisha that even God couldn't do this. Look what happened to him. Now the king appointed the officer on whose hand had, he appointed that man in charge of the gate. But look in verse 17. The people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God said. In other words, God took that man who was supposed to kill Elisha, who doubted God's word. The king put him in charge of the gate. He told him to open the gate so the people could go out and get the food. Well, he opened the gate, and all the people came out in such a massive throng that they literally trod him into the ground. They stepped all over him and trampled him into the dust in their desperation to get at the food. So God used their starvation to bring his judgment on that man who doubted him. So there is... But notice that all of this is happening, in part, it's happening not just to save the people from their desperate situation, but it's also to protect the life of Elisha. There's a reversal of death and life here. The man who was going to kill Elisha is dead, and Elisha is still alive. That's the reversal that takes place here, and it's a reversal that happens on the basis of faith. Because Elisha was faithful to God's word, God protected his life. Because this murderer, this murderer did not believe the word of God, he lost his life in this text. And so throughout this chapter, we're about out of time. We won't get into chapter 8 today. But, um, but you can see throughout, throughout these four chapters, there's one pattern that's being repeated over and over again. And the text is, we've got so many different stories all lined up in a row because it's like God is 
hitting, he's using a hammer and he's hitting a nail. He's going to keep hitting that point until we get it. And the point is, there's always a reward for our faith. God is not going to let his people fail who trust in him. And the reason God has to tell us this, tell us that in so many different stories is because we don't want to accept it. We don't really want to entrust our lives to God. We always, we want to doubt. We want to, we want to say, I'll trust God this far and no further. Where is God's word now? And God is, the reason God inspires these stories and makes them so repetitive for us, I know the lesson today was rather repetitive, but the reason for that repetition is because that's what it takes for us to learn. That, that's how hard our hearts are, and that's, that's what it takes for us to trust in God, is we have to have it literally beat into our hearts, that there is a reward for our faith, and we must not give up because the reward will come in God's time. So we just hold on and not lose heart. Do not become weary in doing good. Because he who sows according to the Spirit will reap, according to the Spirit, he'll reap eternal life. Um, let's pray and go to worship. Father in heaven, we do um, confess to you that our hearts are slow to believe, and we are we're so hard-hearted before you. And it takes so long for us to learn just to trust you. Soften our hearts, O oh Lord, by your word, and let us be faithful to you day by day so that we can live a life that is worthy of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.